Rise and shine, Mr. Freeman. Be careful of what you do. Big Brother is watching you. You say that you got me all in the mortgage. Rather than offer you the illusion of free choice, I will take the liberty of choosing for you. Hi, everyone. This is the Hurricane Labs InfoSec Podcast Point Zero Eight, the No, You Can't Close Pandora's Box edition. And I think we all know what we're going to be discussing today. And if you have no idea, congratulations. Please step up to receive your Oblivion Award. Yay. Tom. Yay. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. You're welcome. But really, today we're going to be talking about the Apple FBI encryption debate in depth. And after that, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the hospital hacker payment situation. So anyway, I'm Kelsey Clark, marketing person and list maker. I'm Corey Ham, pen tester. Tom Kupchak, something in charge of something. I'm Nathan Burroughs, the thing he's in charge of. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Nathan. Thank you. So there's this thing with encryption going on. We're going to be talking about, of course, the two sides of the debate briefly, just so everyone can be up to date with what's going on, what the situation is that's bringing this back into the light, so to speak, and... What are the two major concerns to keep in mind as the situation moves forward? So, so Kelsey, are we going to get to scream and throw things at each other for part of this? Probably. That comes later. Okay. It happens. <laughs> hope. So anyway, everyone remembers the San Bernardino shootings where the city or county employee was a terrorist and Terrorizer. decided he wanted to shoot up a like community event, which that's not the point. The point is he happened to have an iPhone 5C. And iPhone 5Cs, by default, have hardware encryption that's enabled. So what that means is essentially you need the passcode to decrypt the storage of the iPhone. So the FBI was like, we don't have enough information from this guy's iPhone. Even though we have iCloud backups, that's not enough. We'll ask Apple to decrypt this for us or to specifically to build an entry point for the FBI so that they can decrypt it themselves. And Apple publicly responded and said, you know, an open letter from Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, saying, we don't want to do this. They're trying to justify it under uncertain terms. And if we do this, we can never undo this. So the intro where Kelsey said you can't close Pandora's box, that's a big part of Apple's argument, essentially meaning if you build something that negates encryption once and you build that with the assumption that it's only going to be used once, that's a false assumption. It's going to be used many times and for many purposes, potentially by malicious actors. So, But the FBI's logic is essentially, all right, you're the company that built this. You have a responsibility by law to work with us, basically to just comply with law enforcement. And the FBI is trying to justify this with something called the All Writs Act of, what is it, 1789? So it doesn't take a legal analyst to figure out that trying to use an act from 1789 to apply to an iPhone, which is a product of 2007 and newer. George Washington totally had an iPhone, so I don't know what you're talking about. Right, but it didn't have hardware encryption because you had the four. But um, <laughs> Well, so the problem with the All Writs Act is, well, what it does, if I'm understanding correctly, is that it requires private assistance with law enforcement efforts. So 
It's kind of it's vague, right? It doesn't say like, please decrypt this it's, iPhone. It's basically what they're asking for. It's a law enforcement effort that they want assistance with from a private company. So right, but the, see the there's a couple legal arguments to be made for Apple in this case, which is essentially that it does say in the All Rights Act that it, it's essentially like a reasonable level of compliance. For example, the IETF or the IEEE 91190, whatever the organ, I think it's IETF. They have a statement that's. I assume at least looked over by lawyers in which they say that based on the typical amount of development effort that would be required to build this, it is beyond the legal scope of what the All Rights Act would normally building this. Not only would it have security concerns, it would also take a lot of development effort and then it can't just be done at the you know drop of a hat. Like, Well, and developers don't really like to go back and put holes in there. Right. I mean, aside from the moral obligation and the security obligation, the it would be exceed the legal requirement of the All Writs Act. What you're glossing over is, is two points. And the first is that this was a vulnerability that existed prior to like iOS 8. Right. No, it was in iOS 8 even. You, you could go and essentially brute force the phone. And right. that's what the FBI is wanting to allow for the phone to be able to be brute forced. Right. This isn't some cutting edge technology. This is something that anyone with a reasonable amount of intelligence can go out and figure out how to do on their own. They've done it before. And exactly. I mean, that's why they corrected the vulnerability in the first place. And to revert back to it, you're now opening it up to all the problems they had previous that they then corrected. So one of the things I'd like to kind of touch on, just since it seems to be getting overlooked in a decent amount of like the typical Avenue news stories, is just what the FBI is actually asking about and then some of the legal precedent for that. So they're asking... For a way to electronically input a passcode. Yes. So everyone that has an iPhone knows that you can only input the passcode by Ten touching. times, and then it, it right. wipes the phone, if that's enabled, which in this case it is. Well, even beyond that, you can only input the password with your finger. You can't do it with a computer without some other... I mean, there. I know that there are physical... Like, there's, for example, a device you can buy that has a light sensor, and uh, you have to basically pull off the digitizer, which is the thing that makes touch turn into digital stuff. There is are ways to do that with current you hardware. Some robotic fingers. You well, know, I've actually seen it, people have replicated that sort of similar technology using Legos. But the point is, the FBI is like, we don't want Legos. We don't want, like, <laughs> the FBI has decided they want to be able to electronically input passcodes, which is currently not supported by... Apple directly. And you might be able to hack it in, but it's definitely not something... To get it to be accurate, I assume that you would have to alter the hardware of the phone currently. Not necessarily. I, I can see them doing something like that in software. But I guess from a misinformation standpoint, the biggest thing that I've been hearing, and you guys can agree or disagree, but a lot of the news people are saying, like, the FBI is trying to get Apple to decrypt an iPhone. Which they're not. They're absolutely not trying to decrypt Well, that's decrypt the end it. result. Yes. N- not the end result. No. They're trying to unlock an iPhone, and that they want it. they want Apple's assistance in making it possible to unlock any iPhone. Make the iPhone easier to unlock. Yes, and by extension, unlock every right. iPhone. By extension, upon the request. reason they want to unlock it is so that they can read the contents of the disk. Yeah, but but nowhere directly are they saying you know in their request, hey, we just want you to remove the encryption from the device. The encryption of an iPhone is essentially a two-part encryption. One part is a device UUID, which is hard-coded into the device's firmware or whatever. It's on some chip in the hardware. And the other part is the passcode. It's basically two-factor authentication where the something you have is the device itself. And the something you know is the passcode. They want to essentially build something so that they can 
eventually decrypt. They, they have the two-factor token, the right. RSA fob, right. and they just they're need to figure out They're not explicitly saying decrypt this for us and give us back all the files. They're saying, you know, build the pathway so that we can get to a decrypted disk. Which is ultimately so it can be expanded upon in the future so they can use this in other applications. Because why would they ask for this if it was something they truly just wanted to use one time? They could get Apple to obviously go and get all the information off the phone with right. what they have proprietarily. There's probably no issue with that in a single instance. But what I think is also getting neglected is the Fourth Amendment issues to this this aspect. And that's when he was going and, yes, the man's a terrorizer, but uh, he still went and took steps to ensure that his privacy was, was kept. His phone was locked. He obviously took added steps to make sure iCloud was shut off. He did not want his information getting out. The man committed a crime, so several of his freedoms go out the window. However, at at what point does that line get drawn? Because now you're saying we want to give the FBI access to people's phones, which in a large way is an extension of people's lives. Just for the uh, listeners that are not constitution experts, could you just explain what the Fourth Amendment is in this case? So so you're... Fourth Amendment it's is a lot of um, different things. But oh, yeah. generally speaking, yeah. your your right to privacy. This can be implied in several cases. One particular instance, I don't remember the name of the court case specifically off the top of my head, but there was an individual who was conducting illegal gambling bets in a public payphone. The Supreme Court went and made a decision on this case and decided that since even though the phone was public, the individual who was using the phone, had a reasonable expectation of privacy, and that's generally the standard they hold. That speech was then protected, and it couldn't be wiretapped without a proper warrant. A similar instance of this would be if I'm in a room conducting a a cell phone conversation, my phone rings, all of a sudden I step out of the room, I might be walking out into a hallway or a public place. Even though that place is public, I have taken an action to show that I am trying to keep my conversation private, so that would say that I'm speaking to that that reasonable expectation of privacy in that speech. And that's somewhat of what this becomes a case of with the phone itself. And I, I know some of the legal precedent for breaking into encrypted things or trying to crack encryption revolves around the Fifth Amendment as well. I don't know if that would apply in this case because there's no self-incrimination that's possible with the person's not around to incriminate themselves anymore. Yeah. But I... I've always heard, at least historically, you can't be, you can't be compelled to, to close. Yeah, right. exactly. But you look at it from the perspective of encryption being a lock, where you can use lock picking techniques or you know a saw to get into that. In this case, the FBI is asking Apple to basically produce a sharper saw. It's an interesting way to look at it, and I think it does come down to the idea that okay, if 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 anyone could give. A hundred percent guaranteed that this would only be used in this one case. I think most people would probably say, "Whatever, just do it." Even legally, still, that's just impossible. Even and still, you set that's, a precedent. That's yeah, but that's not even reasonable to assume because I think in the meantime, since they made the original request, they've made more requests. There has there's been at least twelve additional phones that they've they've said, "Hey, we'd also like to take a look at these." So basically, the FBI has proved everyone's point themselves, which is really convenient. They're not trying to be like, no, we'll just use it this once. They're clearly saying, we want a way to get an iPhone. And it starts with the FBI. But then, you know, where do we draw the line? Does this go then to state government? Oh, it stops Obviously, The line, line, I mean, it goes all the way to China, basically. I mean, come on, if you were a Chinese hacker, 
What do you want? You but want not even you, a hacker. If you're the Chinese government and you have a legitimate say, because the Chinese view people from um, Tiananmen as terrorists, and you want to see a terrorist, he's from Tiananmen, and all the data on his phone, and you have this person coming into your nation. Well, now you have a precedence in which you can go and stop him, search his phone because he's a known terrorist, and gather all this information in a way that other parts of the world may not deem to be acceptable. And there's nothing to say that, you know, theoretically something like that could get into the supply chain in China even, and you could have every iPhone shipped with that code from the beginning, potentially. A backdoor, absolutely. Right. Yeah, I think I think just to reiterate the international precedent fear, of course, it's the United States government demanding information from another internationally held company gives, I mean, chances are pretty great that the company's home country will want the backdoor too. Right. It's almost the same argument that you could use against the NSA holding on, on to zero days or uh, building backdoors or pretty much any basically special security considerations for government or for other entities is like, you know, if the NSA has all these zero days that they're just sitting on and those zero days are sitting unpatched on every server, which means if the NSA gets compromised, then every zero day that they have is now out there and it's just a you know, free for all, which is the same thing. You know, if it starts with the FBI and then the FBI gets compromised and the tool gets leaked, that means everyone's iPhone is vulnerable to everyone else. Yeah, from from what I do understand, though, it is different on that iPhone 5C versus any future iPhone 2. Really? In what way? Um, apparently, the 5C has the previous generation's method of controlling that sort of thing where it's more of a software limitation for the number of pass codes that are entered. So that's something that theoretically could be changed with, you know, a different type of iOS image. Uh, from what I understand, though, on the later iPhones, it's actually a hardware function that rate limits that. So that would be essentially, I wouldn't say impossible, but if they can, you know, change the firmware on that hardware chip, sure, you could do that. It is a different sort of proposition. I think it's one of those cases where... And I was actually, interestingly, I was thinking, like, I'm impressed that Apple actually went public with this. Like, I assume they have at least, like, five other gag-ordered, like, you know, sealed orders that they're complying with at this time. So, like, I was surprised. I figured that you got to assume how many, how much data is Apple already giving? They've already said and disclosed that they've given all the iCloud backups till October 19th. And that's why they want more because let's face it backups only get the important bits of files it doesn't capture all the information in the phone from a forensic perspective i totally understand why they're asking for it and and also it makes you think about okay conventional detective work conventional forensics is this really a linchpin or is that the way they're making it seem to try to motivate this argument because conventional back in the day you can just go and burn all your documents and that they're not going to pass a law that says we have to have all documents are fireproof so no one can burn any documents i, I can't really come up with a scenario in which the phone would really be a linchpin because the truth is phones talk to things and all of those things are potential sources of equal forensic data. It, it almost makes me think of, uh, I think this was a Reddit Ask Me Anything that a bank robber did who basically turned himself in because he never got caught. And one of the things that he said is, you know, he never worked with anyone, never had any accomplices, never told anyone what he was doing. He said That's that was probably one of the best. Though things that prevented him from getting caught right. was because, you know, no one else knew. But that definitely But goes, that seems unlikely for a lot of 
Well, for a terrorist specifically, that goes directly against Actually, almost the goals of what a terrorist Terrorists are, are very good at following what's called operational security OPSEC. Um, I w- it varies. They're, true. Like this, any individual. He is our resident terrorism There was a guy, here, so. the people in Paris <laughs> encrypt, talked using SMS and PSN with no encryption whatsoever, and they still didn't catch them with dragnet surveillance. True. But also, you know, that, that gets back to you're looking for a tiny drop of water in an entire pond. Well, also, the guy who uh, flew the plane into the Twin Towers was flagged for an additional security check, but they didn't go through with it. Fun fact. Well, ultimately, security's human. I mean, it's not the first time that something's shown up in an NASA scan and you've overlooked it. I'm just saying the operational security of many terrorists has not mattered in the end. No, but it is more sophisticated than the average user. I mean, he went so far as to ensure that he did shut off his iCloud backups that he took in and hide the security they were, I on thought his they, phone. So he just wasn't backing anything useful up, or no? I I heard. You know, obviously everything's just what's in the right. media. Right, the but, FBI has But there is a said. point in which he shut off his backups. They haven't said where. Or, or they don't or know what. why. He could have just True. not plugged in his phone and been connected to Wi-Fi. Well, the other thing is, I mean, they haven't even said, you know, this guy's password could be 1234. Apple also wants us to believe that they have no way to take a product they're putting out and identify what the passcode is once you put it in there, that their right. security is so tight that, that they have no backdoor built in inherently themselves to allow this seemingly desirable function in their phone. Well, they used to have that, and then they got rid of it. Reset it there. The one one in D.C. was always a bunch of FBI guys (laughs) hanging out there at the Genius Bar. (laughs) They're just on a wait list forever. I don't know. I think I'm going to summarize so we can move on to the next topic. Uh, So we have the feds on one side saying this will only be a one-time deal with this case. This one time, like, the next, you know, They've already requested. They're not even... They just want it because they want it. They want it because they think they can get it. Exactly. And it makes their job easier. Well, so they're professing the one-time deal with this case for Apple to disable security features that prevent the attempts to guess the phone's passcode, um, but not directly penetrating. Yeah. Um, and then Apple, on the other hand, saying that the physical world is different than the tech world. Um, in the physical world, once you destroy something, it's gone. But in the digital world, once it's created, it can be used over and over again. And so this opens up Pandora's box to a far less secure, you know, just for far less security for companies, businesses, and individuals. And so, therefore, it's infringing on millions of law-abiding users' civil liberties. Um, And ultimately, they're looking at the big-picture precedent that is the concern here. That sounds good. So moving on, there's a situation that has gone on recently that shows exactly why security is so crucial in the healthcare industry. In every industry. Police in every, too. yes. Police, it's hap- they mentioned that too. But this is just a good example of how prevalent it is or pervasive. So yeah, recently the Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center computers were effect- infected with ransomware, which left them paralyzed. For a whole week. Yeah. That's a long time. Shows the importance of backups. Offsite backups. Uh, so basically, anyone that doesn't know, it's been a phenomenon for quite a long time, but there's a lot of different strains of it, just like hepatitis. Uh, ransomware, ransomware really is the hepatitis. Oh yeah, ransomware is absolutely the hepatitis. Or the of AIDS malware. or malware. But anyway, no, it's not like AIDS. Anyway, it's like hepatitis. <laughs> okay. We'll anyway, go with that. so ransomware is essentially this specific type of ransomware. You get infected by it, and then it encrypts all your files, meaning you can't get to them. It encrypts all your files with a key that the attackers get to keep, and then they say, "Well, we'll sell you this key. It just costs X amount of dollars, and that number varies widely from." 
you know, one Bitcoin to one quarter of one Bitcoin to what usually, by the way, Bitcoin is what they use because it's, um, you know, it's an easier way to transfer money than using green dot money packs or whatever they used before that. Well, so how does ransomware come about? So it it varies widely, like any malware, it depends. But typically, you're gonna the vector is gonna be through a client, through someone who looks at an email they shouldn't have looked at, someone who clicks something and downloads something they shouldn't have looked at, or goes to the wrong site. But it's usually a client that gets infected. So meaning your average end user, not, they're not going for your web server, they're not going for your email server, they're going for your users. It's, it's basically social engineering. It's dragnet. So. The, Essentially, they're emailing everyone on the internet saying, hey, everyone click this, and eventually someone in every organization probably does. But it is getting more sophisticated, and now it's it's also working to where, in addition to affecting the system, then it starts to, to replicate and reach oh, out right. and try to infect coordinated systems with right. that. And that's what happened here in the hospital. You know, Obviously, one individual was the the ground zero right, the, the for vector. that. And the then, attack vector is an end user through phishing or through other... Their entry point is the end user, but their target is the entire domain. So in this case, they went for and got all of the data that the hospital had pretty yeah, much. Yeah, it, it was crazy. Um, just a list of all the things that were going on. Ambulances were diverted. Electronical medical records disappeared. Email was unavailable. There was no access to x-ray or CT scan info. Some of the departments were basically shut down. So it's, it was Right. No, this is bad. Like a week... If you're a hospital, a week is a long time. That's a lot of things you have to do. Well, then your Hippocus hurts too because you don't know that that data that they previously encrypted wasn't compromised during that time. They had a whole week to do with whatever they wanted. One of the biggest arguments with these types of things is do you do you negotiate with them or do you say no and, and stand fastidiously against them? But I think that most of the time it's pretty much the end result is pay. Because the truth is that almost every time that when they pay, the attackers give them the files back. But it's, it's like the United <laughs> States, though. It's like we don't we don't you know compromise in with but they terrorists. Do. Well, yes. Anyway, by them returning your files, they don't embrace the public against them. Now it's like, well, you know, typically they do give back the files, and it builds that. Well, it builds that, the that trust hope. they need to get the paid. The hope exactly right. Just from a security standpoint we were talking about this earlier about dollars invested preemptively versus dollars invested after the fact plan on being infected right so the bitcoin payment alone was seventeen thousand dollars but see here's the thing we were talking about this in pen test earlier i don't think that the cost can be solely summarized by the bitcoins the the cost goes far beyond just the bitcoins the ransom cost itself how much did the ransom cost that's like only a fraction of what the total infection cost not only in lost time lost health like all that stuff can be taken into numbers. well and the hipaa violation so they will get right. fined for or, that or pci or and, and the other argument that i made is that they're going to do the stuff they would have done preemptively after the fact, because they have to, they're not going to like be like, okay, we paid the ransom, all right? Let's keep going with what we were doing before. They're gonna, you know, they're gonna hire a bunch of security people and buy a bunch of really fancy appliances that don't do anything and all that normal security stuff. They're gonna have to do everything they would have done before anyway, so they might as well do it before. It's, yeah, you do have a responsibility to your customers to secure your network, especially when you're talking an institution like a hospital, police, law enforcement. Right, and those are some of the worst because of most low, of them because of low funding. Is that? Well, normally the problem. See, here's it's how a I... complex infrastructure. You have many sites 
all needing to communicate together, all with various levels of technology and and you're you know you're talking with all the important hospital people. They're concerned with a lot of things that go beyond security. They're concerned with like you know making sure that their policies are compliant with federal policies, making sure that their funding is. You could argue, I mean, you could argue that this is true with almost any industry. However, the healthcare industry is one that is notoriously has a lot of overhead and regulation and other things that are, you know, justifiable. But I think security ends up getting knocked down the totem a couple steps. The best tips of how to protect yourself from ransomware. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. (laughs) How to protect yourself from ransomware. Patch your machines. Patch. Regular backups. Mm. Be wary. No, no, no. Offsite. Off-site. Don't plug. Don't have. What so, did I say? You I said, said regular backup. So, okay, here's the important oh. thing to notice with ransomware. Ransomware will connect to all your computers and see what else is connected to them and then infect that. So okay. if all your backups are constantly connected, that means they're going to get encrypted. So you need something that isn't connected. Okay. So offsite backups. Offsite backups. And then have a plan or a plan on being infected. Also, I would argue that probably phishing training some kind of social engineering it, it helps but very little compared to the other two the other two are way more important well and ultimately any type of awareness and education on the user end is great Beneficial. it's great yeah it's not going to give you as much as offsite backups are but sure. it's still part of the puzzle yes i think <laughs> we're done here today <laughs> all right <laughs> thanks everyone for listening in and we'll have more See for you, you next, next time. time. Thanks, Corey, for interrupting my <laughs> farewell. Bye, guys. Bye. Everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs>